welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the need, the need to podcast. This is episode 18, Mission Impossible from 1996. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. Before we introduce our guest, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping off uh, at the top of the show. So number one, in other podcasts, we've had, when we've had franchises, we've had sort of a recurring guest, a recurring expert, quote-unquote expert for that series, right? On Keanu Club, we had Carol was our Bill and Ted Mm -hmm. expert, or our guest tonight was also our John Wick expert. Yes. So Dan Hayden was a a very specific expert of ours. He's our year 2000 action expert. (laughs) But with Mission Impossible, considering there are six movies and Cruz does not have a ton of movies to his name, and especially considering they're all so different, the way that Mike and I decide that we're going to do this is that each time a new director takes the helm of a Mission Impossible movie, we're going to have a new guest. So instead of having a Mission Impossible expert and doing basically 15% of Cruise Club just with that person, we're going to have one guest tonight and then a new guest on the next Mission Impossible movie. So I think it's going to be very exciting because they're all parts of a whole, but they all sort of feel until, you know, Macquarie takes over and mm-hmm. sort of establishes the continual tone. They all seem similar, but they all feel different. And I'm excited about that. Yes, yes, I agree. Two other things real quick. Number one, so of these six movies I said, so this is episode 18 for the first Mission Impossible. In four more episodes, episode 22, we're going to do the second one. Four after that, 26, we're going to do the third one. Then we're going to take seven episodes to get the fourth one, episode 33. Five episodes later, get the fifth one, and then four to get number six. So basically, with a little bit of extra gaps here and there, basically every fourth movie for yeah. kind of the rest of time, is going to be Mission Impossible, That's... which I am totally on board with. <laughs> That's incredible. And I think you and I are both sort of a little stunned that we're here already, right? Like that oh, yeah. he's doing Mission Impossible, like that we're even at 1996 in his timeline right now, like is baffling me. Like it feels like we're burning through his material. The crazy thing is that next movie we're doing, Jerry Maguire, is also 96. Then there's a three-year gap as he filmed the crazy amount that he filmed oh, yeah. for Magnolia and for Eyes Wide Shut, they both come out in 99. Not only are we in 96 already, but like in two episodes, we're going to be in 99. Like, we're going to jump way ahead. Insane. So, And those two movies are basically like more than one movie anyway. Correct. So yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it takes time. The final thing that I want to sort of, this might kick off our introduction to the guest. We've had such a spoil of riches here on the show in terms of Tom Cruise movies. Right now, I have this as my number one Cruise movie. I don't know if that's <laughs> true or not, but right now on my rankings on Letterboxd, number one movie, Mission Impossible. So... We're going to find out if you want to, where's it, where's it fall roughly for you? Yeah, so, you know, I don't want to bury the lead or anything here, but I even surprised myself rewatching it this time. This is right now my favorite Tom Cruise movie yeah. uh, that yeah. we've watched so far. Yeah. I mean, hell yeah. Yeah. With us tonight to talk about Mission Impossible, to kick things off, like, we've seen crews in action, we've seen crews in blockbusters, but I feel like this is taking things to the next level. That this is a movie that was sort of struggling to get made, then Tom Cruise joined, and like this was sort of became his vision in a way. We will get into all of that later, but with us tonight, talking about Mission Impossible, this 1996 Brian De Palma film, we have Mike Flynn. Hello, Mike! How is it going, guys? It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much for coming back here we are so excited to have you on this very sort of landmark momentous occasion Mm -hmm. i would assume that you've seen most if not all of the early tom cruise movies up to this point where roughly does this fall in your favorite tom cruise movies if you want to say either overall even though we're not there yet or just kind of to this point this movie is pretty high up on my list of de palma movies it's probably the one of the best blockbusters that came out in the summer in the 90s. It's probably still my favorite of the franchise. Mm-hmm. I love Fallout, but 
we're probably going to get to why this is my favorite. Because sure, absolutely. It's basically a Brian De Palma thriller for the 70s or the 80s with mm. the Mission Impossible IP. It's similar what he did. I'll get to this later. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's so much to get to. <laughs> Let's ease into it. So in mm-hmm, terms of mm-hmm. your favorite Cruise movies, I'm assuming this is up there. Are there ones that you like more than this, I guess is the question. Because we know, based on your tastes, based on what we know about you in terms of John Wick, in terms of the movies that you signed up to do, that this is right in your wheelhouse, that it feels like a lot of Cruise's movies right in your wheelhouse. Where, where does this rank on your favorite Tom Cruise movies? It's pretty high. I would probably put something like Risky Business or Magnolia or Collateral above okay. it. Okay, okay, okay. But mm-hmm. this is his first bona fide action movie, probably still his best pure action film. Yeah, it's crazy how he's like going to, I forgot he goes like toe to toe with John Voight at the end here. It's like, wow. Noted Hollywood conservative John Voight. <laughs> I kind of want to just jump into it. How many times have you seen this? Uh, are you familiar with this one? I mean, I know I think we both I've love only, the franchise. but I think I've only seen the first four before tonight, before I rewatched it for this. I think I've only seen the first four once each. Oh, okay. I think I watched Rogue Nation. I think I watched it a second time. Maybe before Fallout, maybe not. But I've seen Fallout at least twice. No, I saw okay. Fallout twice in theaters. I've seen Fallout at least three times. That, I think, is my favorite just because I always skew newer. But I'm, I'm very curious to think because when I was reflecting back, my this is going to sound crazy, I think. But when I first watched these movies, I decided, I was like, there's the Mission Impossible franchise. There was four at the time. And there's four Scream movies. And I've never seen any of them. So over eight nights when I was in like either college or right out of college, I alternated Mission Impossible Scream, Mission Impossible Scream, which makes zero sense, but I saw a lot of things that I really liked. They all kind of jumbled together a little bit in my brain. In my mind with Mission Impossible, I thought the first two were good. I thought three took it to another level, but then watching it tonight, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, if this is what I thought was just fine, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't know what we're getting into. Yeah, I don't know anything anymore after watching this again because, like, this starts at a level that I was completely unprepared for and unaware of when I first saw this as a teenager in high school in theaters. I, it just. I, it went right over my head. I did not have a good experience the first time. And now it's this taut foreign Hitchcock remake of, not, but not like he just, it's insane what the Palm is doing with this material and I'm loving it. And yeah, I, I was surprised too, coming back to this franchise. Like how many times have you seen each of the movies roughly? Um, so it's kind of funny. Like this was a big franchise. I used to watch this a lot with my dad and uh, like every time a new movie would come out, we'd watch the last movie or try to watch like the last two or something like that. And yeah. I think part three is the only one I didn't see in theaters. The last movie that we saw together was Fallout. So that's still pretty special experience. And it's not that it's even my favorite franchise, but it just never really disappointed. Uh, Number two is the one I've seen the least. I don't really know, you know, what to expect next time I rewatch that. All I remember, literally the only thing I remember about two is dubs. That's all I remember. I know it's a John (laughs) Woo movie. Mm -hmm. I know he's he's scaling the mountain face in the beginning. I know that. Yeah. And I remember dubs and that's all I remember. So we'll see. Uh, But after that, I've seen the rest of them probably like, you know, three times each at least. Okay. But at this point, Fallout just twice, but the rest of them, like, yeah, so quite a bit. Mike Flynn, you said this is probably your favorite franchise. Where does this rank 
among all seven. Like, I don't, I don't want to, like, this isn't quite too fast, too forever where we're talking about the entire franchise. It's mostly because we haven't right. gotten to the rest yet. You know, over overview, knowing where this goes, knowing it goes from basically a big blockbuster to, like, one of the biggest movies of the year. Like, not that this wasn't, but, like, it gets even bigger. Where does this fall for you in the landscape, in the scope of the franchise? This is probably tied with Fallout for my top because I am a massive Brian De Palma fan, and he's one of my favorite directors. He's kind of the original Tarantino in the way he was remixing stuff. I saw it in the theater when I was a kid. A lot of the espionage went over my head, and it was kind of like an action movie that had a lot of moving images. But it wasn't until I got older that I really appreciated that De Palma was going back to his roots where he was doing a remix of Hitchcock and Antonioni and movies like Blowout, Body Double. Tom Cruise's performance is a lot like John Travolta in Blowout, where he takes this very handsome, very nimble man and makes him really sweaty and paranoid. He's like, out of a Pakula movie from the 70s. It's brilliant. And dorky. Like, he looks dorky, too, in the glasses. Like, it just... And the hair, <laughs> the hair is so... I mean, for a guy who has been almost from the very jump, like a sex symbol, right? It's, it's He's been, like, a sex symbol. He's been an icon. He's been someone that you're supposed to... That women want and men want to be. And yet here, he still looks great, obviously, but he kind of looks just like a... Like, he doesn't look like Ethan Hunt's going to become. He kind of just has that right. that sort of that 90s-ish hairstyle, and like he's got the, the glasses on a lot, and just, he's sort of more everyman a little yeah. bit than... You could see him behind the desk just as easily in a Mission yeah. Impossible movie, right? Or, or like in a part that Jeremy Renner will come to play later on as like not a field agent or something. Like, that's how he almost starts out. Yeah, but I think Flynn hit it on the head when he said, like, paranoid, right? Like, this is a great De Palma paranoid thriller, and he really loves to lean into that with the shots Mike was mentioning and everything like Dutch angles and the timing of this with the editing like I just I don't know I just fell in love with it this time I think that The Untouchables which is De Palma's other big TV adaptation that he did for Paramount is his second best movie and he does something similar in Mission Impossible where De Palma with The Untouchables started the whole Christopher Nolan trend where they take an IP and they strip it of all the corny stuff and they keep the basics and give you a really dark realistic presentation of it that's what I think this Mission Impossible is it's kind of the Christopher Nolan version of that where they got the face masks they got the gadgets there's the team dynamic, for lack of better terms, as we'll discuss with this movie. But it's his take on the TV show. And he was a fan of the show. It's absolutely incredible. And if there's any evidence of the altruistic transitions that have gone throughout the franchise, this is the one. So that's what really struck me, too, is that how they started with a guy like the Palma, someone, you know, I just doesn't think when I think of blockbusters, I never, you know, it never occurs to me. And this is sort of like an anti-blockbuster in a lot of ways, because there really isn't a whole lot of action action. Like, he doesn't really fight anybody in this movie or doesn't anything. doesn't shoot a single gun. There's only five gunshots the entire movie, mm-hmm. and none like, are at or from Tom Cruise. Yeah, and, like, the biggest action set piece is the most questionable thing, like, towards the end. You know, the thing, it doesn't ruin the movie by any stretch, but, I mean, it's still, like, it could have been a little better with the helicopter and the tunnel and everything, but still, like, my point is, like, I don't 
think people knew exactly what to expect. Like, I want to know what the studio thought when you turned this in. And if they were like, yes, the public's going to love this and they're going to discover this De Palma person. Or they're just like, oh, no, like, what have we done? We turned it over to an auteur and he just did whatever he wanted. And it's just going to hit or miss. If memory serves, the ending that we get in the film, The Tunnel, is actually a reshoot. And De Palma wanted to do a more intimate ending, which ah. is more in line with this stuff. Robert Town came in and Cruz had him write a more bombastic ending. And I want to say De Palma and Cruz were not on the same page a lot. That's what I heard. I I, I sort of get the sense that this is sort of based on pure speculation, but it feels like Tom Cruise from the jump had a lot of creative control. And I wonder if De Palma, knowing who he was, was sort of turned off a little bit by that. Like, well, hey, man, I'm I'm the director. Like, this should be up to me. And it feels like a lot of it was sort of coming from the mind of Tom Cruise. And I feel like even if Tom Cruise is not necessarily antagonistic, I can sort of see any director where he thinks that he's supposed mm-hmm. to be the man in charge and being sort of, you know, almost playing second fiddle to the star. You know, I can see why you would be upset. Yeah, it's definitely not as common as today. I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary De Palma, where it's literally just I him did. talking about it. I did. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really badmouth Cruz when he talks about Mission Impossible. He goes through how when the movie was released, he was going through a really rough time personally. And during filming, he was going through a divorce, I believe. But he has really good things to say about it. And he's proud that he was able to visually prosper with this movie. Honestly, I can't see another version of this coming out. So let's kind of dive into it. Mike Flynn, if you have to pick, and I, I don't want this to be like a Sophie's Choice. I know there's probably a lot of answers to this, but if there's a favorite scene or a favorite moment or a favorite line, what is your favorite part of Mission Impossible? Ooh, I like the ending a lot. Okay. I like the initial action sequence where the entire IMF team gets wiped out. Emilio, no. Yeah. I forgot when I watched it again how graphic his death is. Oh, like, yeah. You see him get impaled in the head. That's like from a horror movie and it got a PG-13 and that was when PG-13 started getting weak. By the way, a side note here, Mike, we kind of messed up. We have to do this as a, a clip show later, but apparently... Tom Cruise was in Young Guns as a cameo in 1988, and this was sort of a repay of the favor. Like, Emilio Estevez, uncredited in this movie, he's in the first, like, 20 minutes. He's sort of a sizable part, and then he gets killed. Because they're both outsiders. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we're going to have to go back. We'll do the clip show at the end. We'll have to find Tom Cruise's scenes. I'm sure they're on YouTube. Uh, Don't have to twist my arm. Exactly. I loved Young Guns as a kid. (laughs) Anyway, Mike Flynn, go on. And I also like how Henry Cizerny got cast as the same part that he plays in Clear and Present Danger in this, which is basically Devin Nunez where he's just a weaselly bureaucrat that's trying to screw over the good guys. He's a presence that I wish was in more movies, and then he's in the trailer for uh, Ready or Not. I was like, oh, holy shit, he's back. That's awesome. I'm going to see Ready or Not as we're recording this in two days, so I'm very excited to see that. Mike Mansi, what about you? What is your favorite? I mean, there's, I think there's kind of a maybe an obvious answer that if you don't take, I will take, but there's, I, have a, I have a backup <laughs> as well. But what's your favorite moment, favorite part of Mission Impossible? It might not sound like this is my favorite part because I might sort of rag on it a little, but I just love love it to death. It kind of goes hand in hand with what is my actual favorite part, which is the way this movie looks. I just think this is gorgeous. Like there are shots in this that my jaw was on the floor. And then there's obviously like the beautiful, you know, sequence in the vault and everything like that is really awesome and stuff. But in between all that stuff, we get incredible shots of 1996 internet. (laughs) I, I just love the way that this movie tries to like forward think the, uh, the internet and the World Wide Web. It's, Dude. Uh, 
Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it doesn't detract one bit. When I watched My Best Friend's Wedding for my Julia Roberts mini binge, she sends an email, like, <laughs> the way that she sends an email in that movie is worse than the way Tom Cruise sends an email in this movie. Oh, like, I amazing. am terrified, because I've never seen it, we're going to get to it soon, I'm terrified for You've Got Mail in a movie mm-hmm. based around email in the early 90s. Like, it is... It's, it's wild. It's insane. I loved it. And that's what it was. It was the Wild West of the internet, and movies had no idea, like, how it was actually going to all come together by, you know, the year 2000 or whatever, when it all kind of got streamlined a little better and everything. And so this is just terrific to look back and see this. And, and you know, he's the IMF agent, so he has access to, like, the most internet available, right? And he's like, 100 and, 125 searches for Bible. It's like, this is amazing. <laughs> If you guys have seen Disclosure, probably the most moronic use of email and the internet in a movie in the 90s. There's stuff like The Net, Johnny Mnemonic, Strange oh, Days, yeah. Hackers. You were on our Johnny Mnemonic episode for yes, uh, Keanu Club. Yeah. I feel like when the movie is based around the internet, maybe this will save you, you've got mail. I feel like it, it sort of doubles down in a weird way. But when it's sort of tangentially involved, like the one scene where Julia Roberts sends one email or here where there's a couple scenes, but there's the one where he has to contact, you know, Job or Max or whoever. He's not sure who he's contacting via, you know, Usenet and alt groups and whatever. Like, it just, oh, this is, this is, I don't, I don't know what <laughs> this is. It's into the future of Reddit. Both of your answers are great and right and correct. I don't know how you can watch this movie and not be just in awe of the vault scene. It's been oh. so parodied, paid homage to, and you've seen it so many times and all this different stuff. In spite of all that, Watching him do that is the most like nerve-wracking thing I've seen in forever. And this is a movie that's almost 25 years old. Like it is so well made and so tense and so wonderful. And him getting you know pulled up and just dangling above while the guy comes back in, and then at the very end the knife dropping down and plunking down, and then oh. it's just it's so wonderful. Him catching the bead of sweat on his hand, like all of it, like the way that they set it up so perfectly. Oh, it's a pressure cooker. Yep, the cup there and just like the, the the one drop of condensation spilling and setting off the alarm. Like we know exactly everything that could go wrong and we're ready for it. We're primed for it. And then for it to almost go wrong, it's like, oh God. But yeah. I do want to give an honorable mention when he brings in Ving Rames and Jean Renault, Leon the professional himself, he's explaining what they have to do, and Ving Rames is like, Oh, this sounds this sounds bad. He's like, Relax, Luther it's much worse than you think. I'm just like, oh, that is such a perfect line. A couple lines later, Ving Rhames says, you really think we can do this? He just says, we're going to do it. Like, that's just like, like, look at me, I'm Tom Cruise. Like, we're going to do it. Like, we, have you seen my other movies? Like, we're going to get this done. Like, it's fine. (laughs) We're good. I fucking love that sequence. I did not want to sort of steal that away, though, from a conversation too soon. You know, I knew you were going to bring that up and I knew I'd have a chance to talk about it as well and it's iconic right like it's in like all the montages now of classic movies and stuff of that nature and things like that and it's so well orchestrated and yeah I'm just kind of I'm still in awe of it as well like it's just a masterpiece sequence it's definitely the centerpiece oh yeah for sure like the crazy thing about where this franchise goes without really touching on spoilers for future movies but when you see rogue nation and every trailer has tom cruise hanging on the outside of a plane and then you go see the movie and that's the opening sequence i'm like what the Mm -hmm. fuck is going on like how is this not the third act centerpiece like how is this not like the sequence And there's like six in that movie that are like crazier than that it's like what is happening like what is this franchise that you're selling the movie on is like oh yeah that's whatever we can get out of the way it's like 
what 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 the thing i was i would should add is the reshoot on it from what i heard about the original endings from somebody it's kind of similar to if you know about what they did with die hard with a vengeance where the third act in the current version is a mess but if you have the dvd or the blu-ray it's got the original ending where simon gets away and mclean kills him and tracks him down it was kind of like that switcheroo. So what's kind of incredible about like that set piece is like not only is it in the middle of the movie and it's not like the main finale or anything like that, it's not technically what would be considered an action sequence like the rest of the future Mission Impossible movies will become, you know? In the, and in the next one, Joey, like it starts with him just climbing a rock, like rock climbing. No, free solo, no, baby. Free soloing, you know, it has nothing to really do with anything except like Ethan Hunt can do. He's this strong and this focused. But I just love that it's remembered for being such a great action sequence. And it's really kind of not and nothing, not that that's bad or anything, but I love it for that, that it's people are just it's like it, it builds the anxiety. It's a tension builder. Like you're saying, it's like a pressure cooker. It's terrific. I also do want to in case on the off chance that I forget when we talk about Mission Impossible 2, I don't think I will. But speaking of Free Solo, there was a video on YouTube where Alex Honnold, the guy who is the star of Free Solo, went through the history of rock climbing in movies like Cliffhanger and Vertical Living, like all the whatever. And he said Mission Impossible 2 is the movie that gets it the closest to like actually right and legit. So I feel like through the entire franchise, Tom Cruise, even in his very first movie, doing most of his own stunts, like they feel as special and as important and as fun to watch and, you know, tense to watch as they are. Because I think it looks real because it kind of is real. Like the fact that when they're in the restaurant, he realizes that everybody he saw at the party was also at this restaurant. Like they're all, you know, other agents. Mm -hmm. And he's feeling trapped in there. And then he has the exploding gum that explodes the fish tank. He's doing that. And apparently, like, De Palma did not want him to do that because he probably could have drowned. But he's like, we're going to do it anyway because it didn't look right with the stunt person. And so Tom Cruise just did it. And like, it looks great. It looks as good as it does because it actually happened. And it's things like that, that just make this franchise. There's a lot of spy movies out there. There's a lot of spy franchises. There's a lot of things that like have cool set pieces. And James have Bond, cool... right? Exactly. James Bond is the main competition here. Yeah. But what really elevates, I think even from the very first movie to the next level, all of these movies is the fact that Tom Cruise is doing them himself, like doing the stunts himself. And even if it's not him on every shot, like most of this is him, and it feel you can feel it, and that's important. I would argue that with this movie being his first big action movie, and we all know the trend of how he ends up doing his stunts on all of his movies, he basically becomes the American Jackie Chan in this movie. <laughs> yeah. He just escalatingly gets into more death-defying stunts as they go on. Like, he does Fallout, he does that halo jump, yeah. And now, Top Gun, he's flying a freaking Harrier jet for it real. so good. That just shot just looks amazing. Just knowing he's doing it, like, yeah. It has no reason to look as good as it does. <laughs> no. And I wonder if that's what led him to John Woo for the next movie, because John Woo was still in his, you know, I'm trying to do everything. I'm in America. I'm trying to do all this stuff practical, right? Like, he was fighting, you know, computer graphics for a long time. I actually just saw John Woo in person do a screening of Hard Boiled and Face Off. And he actually Lucky. had good things to say about MI2. And I gotta say, I like it because I'm a big Wu fan and I love the ridiculous Hong Kongness of it. Yeah, I think that's what's gonna, uh, that's what I'm looking most forward to. And hopefully there'll be more <sighs> surprises along the way. So fun. Now let's, let's pause for a second. Let's pump the brakes on this train, this third act train for a second. And let's 
take a step back, and if you have to pick something, Mike, that doesn't, like, we'll start with Mike Flynn again, Mike, that, that doesn't quite work for you, think you that could be better or could be different, or, you know, if it was in your hands, you would have done a little bit differently. Is there something about this movie that doesn't work for you, that feels a little off? What's your least favorite part of Mission Impossible? I don't have many complaints about this movie, because when I watched it again, I always remembered Summer 96, Independence Day, and Twister, and then this was the third wheel, but then my older, wiser state, this is the best of those three. If there's anything that I would change, I probably would have given more direction to the team and established more of that rhetoric. But then again, that's course corrected in the sequels and kind of a moot point. Considering that this is the start of the franchise, I feel like it starts at such a high point that it's hard to really nitpick. Like, you always talk, I mean, we talk about a lot on Too Fast, Too Forever, that like the first Fast and Furious movie is by no means perfect, but it's so good in what it does that it allows the franchise to get as big as it is and even sort of overcome a couple of missteps maybe along the way. This isn't a perfect movie, but considering the fact that this is now one of the biggest franchises in the world, the fact that this starts at such a high point is kind of the, the big reason why we have six of these now and we're going to have another seven and eight or whatever. What about you, Mike Manzi? Is there something about this that you don't like? I mean, I know that you, uh, we both, neither of us gave it a five-star rating on Letterboxd. They were both relatively close, but uh, what about this movie do you not like? Do you have a least favorite part of this movie? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I agree with what Mike said. Like, that kind of got to me, too, a little bit. Not just about the new team dynamic, but the old team dynamic that we meet, because from what I understand, like, John Voight's playing the Peter Graves character from the show, That's possibly. Correct. Right? So, like, yes. you're, if you've seen the show you're coming into this as almost like you know a, a new episode they wrote it as a sequel i believe and offered peter graves the party turned it down because he was so angry about it there's a lot of trivia on here about how like they had hired somebody from the like the guy who i think directed the most episodes of the original show was hired as a consultant for this because huh. they kind of wanted like i think the studio was kind of like hey we want to sort of continue this and have it be a continuation of sort of the feel and the look and everything and I think if I remember right, if I read it right, that De Palma talked to the guys who's like, oh, yeah, we have no interest in like continuing. We're going to do our own thing. And the yeah. guy just never came back. And yeah. they wanted to like rehire or re-add everybody from the original series and have them all die in the first act. Like it kind of felt like it was going to hmm. be a continuation and just sort of be like, nope, we're our own thing. And then when they found that out, they all were like, no, we're not going to do this for the most part. Uh, okay. And some of them were even like, oh, that script wasn't even very good anyway. But like <laughs> it does sort of feel trapped between two worlds, just like Nicolas Cage in Between Worlds. <laughs> where you, on the one hand it wants to show respect and it wants to be pay homage to the franchise that it was but on the other hand i think it wants to modernize and sort of be its own thing and sort of be a showcase and a vehicle for its you know its lead yeah. at, in tom cruise yeah. yeah yeah and i mean and that that's not like my biggest gripe with it either i think my biggest gripe is probably the tunnel sequence and only because and like i would accept that in another summer blockbuster but i think the problem is they do such a great job with practical effects in this movie like with tom cruise playing two characters right like he plays the old senator on tv and then he has to wear that mask and so like that's a really clever movie trick and then at the end when he's john void at the end and he's not talking because i guess they don't have that tech yet but that's you know, it's clearly he's like, when you get close enough, he's really wearing a mask and stuff. And so it was just a little, you know, not little. I mean, it was actually very jarring, especially this time. I was so deep into it. Like, I was so undercover with Ethan this time that uh, when he's hanging off that train and the helicopter and all that kind of stuff, I was just like, I just wish De Palma had his way with the ending. Even you know, if it was a thing where he had to concede so much throughout this that he just got like 
you know, beaten down and was just like not worth the fight or whatever. I don't know. Apparently he had a, a good experience with this movie, but I just wish like I could have that original ending on here. The script, I think, had a lot. It was a David Kep script originally of Jurassic Park fame. Mm -hmm. Town came in later and did the punching up for Cruise. I can see your point that the uh, the train sequence at the end is very incongruous when you see the rest of it. It, it definitely doesn't really exactly fit, and I think it 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 shows its age. Like it's, it feels more dated in a way that the rest of the mm -hmm. movie doesn't. But I also think that it kind of looks, especially when they're when they're on top of the train, it looks like it's from the '60s. Like it looks just visually like that's mm -hmm. what. The, and I don't know if that's intentional or if that's just like. Oh, you know what I noticed about my copy because I watched this on Blu-ray and I thought watching this like it had the perfect amount of grain. I mean, I wonder if that's the film, if that's a trick that De Palma knows, or you know, the length of time they let it develop. But I think that might have something to do with those effect shots. Is they might blend better than others because it's like on film and there's a nice sort of yeah. grain over everything here to sort of make it feel more of like a 70s, 60s, 70s kind of movie or something. I've always loved the, the texture of it. And that credit goes to his cinematographer, Stephen Burham, who had worked with him since Scarface. My least favorite part of this, I'm going to compliment the movie and then my sort of explain that my least favorite part is something that I wish it could have done a little bit better. I think that this movie does it phenomenal job in explaining and introducing tech to then have it come back in the, in the end. Like, we see Tom Cruise with the gum in the restaurant, and then he uses the gum again at the end. Like, we, like it teaches the audience what the tech is, what it does, how it works, so when it has to happen, like, it doesn't have, literally doesn't have the time to explain it, we know exactly what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. It does it like three or four or five different things. It's wonderful. The fact that there are three mask reveals feels one too many. <laughs> like, the, the fact that there's one two minutes in, which is like, okay, cool. Then there's another one 17 minutes in, and then there's the one at the end, where it's like, I don't mind that there being three, but I kind of wish that the second one was closer to the end, so you can hmm. be like, oh, that's the big reveal. Like, that's what we were, like, that's what we were taught to watch for, right? And then for the third one, you'd be like, oh my god. Like, I think the third one still kind of surprises you, but I think that the movie had done such a good job of showing you everything. Of showing you the gum and showing you, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like, all of this, all the tech that he uses, all the gadgets they use, like, it shows once sort of in the beginning and then one sort of the climax at the end and for the mask to be used three times it just feels either a little excessive or a little poorly timed or something and i wish it was just improved a little and this is a very minor nitpick just because the rest of it has done so well but it kind of stood out a little bit not only do i hear you joey but i completely forgot about the opening sequence of this movie where they're getting the name Dimitri from the guy and Tom Cruise yep. is wearing that other mask and everything and it's it kind of worked in a weird in a weird way I, it doesn't work because it's like you see the reveal like through a television monitor and it's not clear like exactly what they're in the middle of and what's yep. going on and it's, it's very confusing and you're like oh this is just the end of the last mission yeah they should have just maybe gone with the two because even, especially since when he dresses up as the senator it's so prosthetic -y, you know like it's such a great makeup job which and he's by the way for a really let's long pause time. for a second so when they show the senator on tv i was like oh that's very clearly Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. And then they have him reenact as the mask. I was like, wait, like, were we supposed to know that was Tom Cruise? Oh, no. I mean, like, I think they did that. It's just to... a joke. 
Yeah, I th- well, yeah, that he he plays both roles. Like, I think they just did that to make the mask effect closer. So, you know what I'm saying? So it's more convincing if Tom Cruise, if we just actually make him up in another role. And sh- that's what I was sort of saying before about how, like, they're selling the effects for me by doing stuff like that. And they sort of drop the ball with the, you know, compositing at the end. Gotcha. The okay. The makeup artist on this is Rob Bottin who did RoboCop, Total Recall, The Thing, oh, and man. so many pioneering movies. You have the money, you go for the best. But I want to add, if you think it's bad in this one, Mission Impossible 2 is like Dark Man into the Darkverse. Oh, it. no. <laughs> because oh, this, is yeah. like, this is like crazy, like old Steve Rogers level. But like I imagine they did that with computers, right? Like way that they de-age people, they probably aged Chris Evans for that shot or whatever, but like this, this is amazing or a blend, yeah. But they pull yeah. it off here with makeup. I also want to point out, and I don't know if this is just—I think this is just like in incongruity. Like it's not exactly it's just you know a, a gaff or a blooper. While we're doing Too Fast, Too Forever, and we're doing the Fast and Furious minute, I am becoming very in tune with like when there's a lot of information <laughs> on screen, pausing and like soaking it all in, like seeing Brian O'Connor's Brian Earl Spillner fake ID. You know, writing all that stuff down, right? <laughs> in this movie, very early on, we see Tom Cruise's, like, Ethan Hunt's, basically his his baseball, like, the back of his baseball card, like, the agent profile, right? Oh, and yeah, it's, like, yeah, the yeah. name and all that different stuff. His mother's name is Margaret Ethan Hunt. Like, why is her middle Wait, name... What? Like, yeah, and, like, she's arrested at the end, but, yeah, her... Yeah, her and his uncle. His uh, nearest living relative is Margaret Ethan Hunt. So he's named after his mother? That could be his mother's maiden name, Margaret Ethan, and then Hunt is the name she took when she married his father. Possibly? And so then that's one they thing. named him after her maiden name? He's got two last names? I guess so. <laughs> the other thing that I noticed, and this is where the blooper comes in, is that his alias, like his undercover alias, basically the whole movie is the, they're trying to get the knock list, which is like the agent's name, their undercover name, and where they're stationed so that they can sort of root out all the different stuff, right? Which seems super duper long, right? Like it seemed way long to me. I'm like, there's got to be 30 agents out there at a time. And it's like, no, there's like hundreds. Oh yeah, there's, there's so many. Because if you think about it, like there's got to be like a, a crew in just about every city, I would imagine. Like there's mm-hmm. got to be like a couple or whatever. Maybe they're not all active, but they're all Simon out. Pegg's, Simon Pegg's in training somewhere out there. Yeah. So Ethan Hunt's alias is Philippe Duchette, like the word no. douche, D-U-C-H-E-T-T-E. And I was like, huh. And then later in the movie, they show it again, and it's Doucette without the H. And okay. if you look online, it shows both. Like, it's, 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 they're two different things. And I went back and I saw it. Like, I was like, why? I don't know what it's supposed to be. In the trivia on IMDb, it says with the H. That sounds almost like his alternate vampire name or something like that. Ooh, from, Lestat from the last movie. Yeah. It's his uh, evil Canadian twin. One of the very few things that I remembered was that John Voight was not actually dead, that he was a bad guy. I also feel like, as brazen as this movie is and killing Emilio Estevez off 20 minutes in the movie, I don't think they're going to do the same thing with John Voight. Like, this is not Death Proof where you kill everyone 40 minutes and you have an entire new cast, right? Like, it's... Mm-hmm. I was like, I think yeah. he comes back. So I, I sort of remember that. Like, that sort of stuck out in my brain. I, yeah, I, I, I remember when he came back in theaters kind of being extremely confused. But now if you watch it, there's a lot of sort of Easter eggs or like little, there's like a trail that leads to him and stuff. So that the point where he looks at the Gideon Bible and he sees the stamp of the hotel and everything, I'm like, oh shit, like he knows now. And from now on, he's going to be playing whoever, right? Like it's yep. trust no one except Ving 
frames, which and Luther, oh hell, man, he's amazing. I love Luther. I'm so glad he gets he's to so come good. back and back and back. What's also amazing is like seeing how like relatively small of a part Luther plays in this movie, and the fact that he would stick around. Like it's just like, oh, that's like a cool, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like and the fact that he was only yeah. cast according to trivia because he looks like the producers felt he looked the opposite of what you would imagine a hacker to look like. Even though apparently in this movie, oh. hacking is just typing. Activate alarm. But he looks, you know, he reminded me of, he's like grown up Nikon from Hackers. Like in the movie Ooh. Hackers, there's that black guy and he's like one of the best hackers in the crew. And I was like, this is, in, maybe this is that guy just, you know, 10 years later, government caught up with them and they're like, instead of going to jail, we'll pay you to do hacking shit. And he's like, I'm down. I'd be banging. <laughs> <laughs> Joey, I had to throw that in there. I was just thinking that the whole time. I'd be banging. So I've got a handful of really cool trivia bits that I do want to share. But before we get there, Mike Flynn, is there anything else about this movie? I know that you could probably talk about this movie for another two hours, but is there anything you would not be able to sleep tonight if you do not mention, we don't discuss about Mission Impossible? What I love is that De Palma made a movie from the heart for this. Yeah. He didn't go in and do a studio hack job. Like yeah. I think if they had gotten any other director, even if they got somebody like Spielberg or something, he would have followed the template that they're going with. It would have been more mm. perfunctory. But with De Palma, he just goes all in because you guys probably know this. He ends up teaming with David Kep again on Snake Eyes. And I think he decided to make a Brian De Palma movie that while it's a mess, it still has the scale of Mission Impossible. And I love that he comes off the biggest commercial success of his career and goes and makes a political thriller, a cop thriller, an assassination movie, an action movie. One that defined what a conspiracy is. Five people, you need it for conspiracy. We know that, right, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Gary Sinise. <laughs> Mike Mansi, what about you? Anything else about this movie that you want to talk about? Because we're going to be able to talk about Mission Impossible five more, I mean, really, seven more times, but five more times as of right now. Anything else about this movie that you want to talk about? I just, you know, want to piggyback a little bit more on De Palma here for a minute because I I always loved this guy. And, like, when I was getting into film, like, as a teenager, like, he's a very intimidating sort of filmmaker, you know, with stuff like uh, Carrie, right? Like, scared me out of my mind and was like, I didn't know movies could feel like this. And Phantom of the Paradise is one of my all-time favorite movies. One of the best musicals ever made. It's just insanity and to to see him say yes to a blockbuster series ip like mission impossible like this and 90 percent get do it what do what he wanted to do right like if all that talk about that reshoot and stuff like that like if he had had his own way like this would have been incredible like to have it it almost kind of reminded me of like when they gave the keys to ryan johnson to star wars you know and uh it turned out to be one of my favorite star wars movies and everyone else was like what the hell happened um i kind of feel like that now with this mission impossible where at the time i was like what the hell was that but now i'm like i love this is i'm all about this stuff and i think the palma is a huge reason for me coming back to this first one you know as well as Cruz of course I love his style in this I love him acting in this I think he's great as Ethan Hunt forms that character really well throughout this whole movie and onward through the franchise and uh, so happy that I liked it more this time one thing I want to point out is that Ethan Hunt is so competent as a spy that he or just as a person I don't know that when he's looking for the book of Job in the Bible he knows exactly where to flip like I don't have to like look on the table of contents and be like oh okay like it's (laughs) 
okay, it's, you know, it's Old Testament. All right, okay, I can sort of get there. I like that. And then also when he's on the internet and he's sending emails, like the way that it's cut, it feels like he's writing a bunch of emails in a bunch of different languages. And he's like fluently typing, not only in English, but in German and probably, you know, we don't see it, but I'm imagining he's typing like 10 or 12 messages. Like it's not like there's Google Translate. Like he's just typing in German. You know, it's just like, it's crazy. <laughs> like he's so competent yeah. there. Uh-huh. He didn't have the advent of, Apple automatically showing you the uh, foreign letters. I did want to mention with regards, this was a point I wanted to make earlier, but I didn't get a chance to, is that there is kind of a Captain Kirk-esque quality to Ethan Hunt as the series progresses where he's perfect at everything he does. But in this one, I feel like the character is the most vulnerable because he's so low level. And like you said before, he's as convincing as a desk job guy as he is in the field, probably more so. And that I think is why the vault sequence resonates so much. Yeah. Also, speaking of the vault sequence, I like that we have Tom Cruise as a firefighter. I mean, he was an arsonist, Mike, all the way back in Endless oh, yeah. Love. His first he's appearance. The, he's on the other side of the law now. He's fighting fires. Even though he's not really a firefighter, but I like that he's a firefighter, dressed as a firefighter. Um, okay, some trivia. So when he was doing, when he when John Renault slips and he falls, he like steadies himself right above the ground, he kept hitting his head, and apparently he kept hitting his head, kept hitting his head, until he realized to put coins in his shoes which balanced his weight more. What? So when, he, when he realized that, that's what IMDb says. Again, gospel of IMDb, who knows if it's true or not, but that's what it says. Is that some, like, old French wise tale remedy thing? Put coins in your shoes to balance yourself. I don't know, man. Or is that science? I think that's a lot more believable than most IMDb trivia entries nowadays. Yeah. I do believe that one. This was the final major studio Betamax release, so that's landmark Whoa. in that regard. Wow, 96? 96. The trick he does, the disappearing CD trick that he does, like, the magic, like, he actually did that. Like, he learned the sleight of hand, and that's not CGI. Like, he just actually made that disappear. Is the knife that falls CGI? Is that a bit of trivia? I don't know. There there was a shot where I just wondered. I was like, I wonder if they made that in the computer to get it precise. I mean, it looked great if it was. I don't know. You mentioned Apple before, Mike. Apple computer had a... So this is is crazy. This is how we know we're 23 years ago. So they have the computer in the movie... uh, their computer in the movie there's a game print ads television spot with scenes from the tv show feature film all that sort of stuff because they had lost three quarters of a billion dollars the quarter before so apple's struggling now you think about how they have more they have enough money on hand they have so much money on hand that they could just buy straight up almost buy a country and not feel it this is at a time where they were struggling they almost lost a billion dollars in a quarter and they're like oh we need our promotion around mission impossible to work my how we've come five years later itunes launches the rest yep. is history. And I want to say this is around the time that Steve Jobs rejoined the company. That would make sense. Yeah, because like, uh, well, I remember the um, the colored Macs popping up like the next year or two. The iMac. Yeah. Because Independence Day does the Apple product placement as well. Two more very minor things. Kristen Scott Thomas said, she quote, I die on page 25, but I die in the arms of Tom Cruise. So it's worth it which I love. The opening credits, which I think this is a thing that comes back over and over again, the opening credits give away seven plot points in a movie. Whoa, yeah, they go by super fast, and I'm like, it's a little jarring, but it feels very television to me also, and uh, it's very unique to this series. They keep doing it. Yeah, because I think even like in Fallout, they're showing stuff that happens later in the movie. I'm like, guys, stop it, but like, you don't know what you're seeing. Fallout's got that. And Rope Nation. Uh, Speaking of Fallout, isn't the character of Max in this, isn't her daughter... A character in that movie? 
when we get there? It's her granddaughter. Oh, her granddaughter. Okay. Oh, yeah, I guess that would make a little... So the role of Max was originally written for a man, and then Vanessa, Har- or Vanessa Redgrave took that role, so that's kind of a cool little reversal yeah. that they were just like, oh, yeah, she doesn't have to be a man. She can be... Anybody can play that part. But here's the list of people who were offered or considered for the role of Ethan Hunt. George Clooney was offered the part, but he turned it down to work on One Fine Day instead. Oof. Okay. Before Tom Cruise got the role, Bruce Willis, John Travolta, Ray Fiennes, Mel Gibson, and Nicolas Cage were considered Hmm. for Ethan Hunt. I could actually go with Ray Fiennes, maybe not as Ethan Hunt, but definitely in this movie. Maybe somewhere in the team somewhere so maybe the Jean Renault guy uh, yeah I could see that but he was do- he did a leading man thing with the movie I mentioned earlier Strange Days which is my favorite Catherine Bigelow movie yeah I think he could have pulled it off well he's he's Lord Voldemort right that's the guy yes yeah. yeah okay that's what I was thinking and then for the the final bit is that for the John Voight role Al Pacino Michael Douglas and Robert Redford were considered for the Jim Phelps role wow so. Redford would have been a nice touch because it would have mm-hmm. been a callback to Three Days of the Condor and all the pros it's been. Mike, since you you said you listened to the Days of Thunder episode, we've sort of changed up the games because we like we're so far like we're drifting so far apart from ah. Hanks and Cruz, so we we can't really imagine. Um, yeah, and I think Joey and I are a little more burnt out because we play it every episode. But I would not mind hearing what the guests. Well, would have what to I say so what I what I'm most interested in, and Mike, you could do one or both or neither. It's totally up to you. I'm most interested in knowing where you're going to put yourself. If you want to walk on role in this movie, where would you put yourself? And if you have an idea what this movie would look like with Tom Hanks in the Ethan Hunt role, by all means, one, both, neither, the floor is yours. The one I want to answer is the, can you picture Tom Hanks in this movie? Okay. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I mentioned Bonfire of the Vanities earlier, and God help you guys when you get to that one soon, because, oh boy, that is one of two De Palma movies I do not like. Hanks would not have sold Ethan Hunt whatsoever. I can't picture him in any role in this movie. Maybe he could be Mr. Phelps in the 2028 reboot of Mission Impossible. Mm, okay. Know. Maybe he could take over for Alec Baldwin in the next, you know, not the next one or the next one, but the one after that. Because the crazy thing about this game, like the reason, Mike Flynn, that we stopped doing this game is because after the next movie we do for Hanks for the Memories, after next week's episode of Joe vs. the Volcano. Then we have Bonfire. But then the movie we do directly after that is Eyes Wide Shut. We're a nine-year gap apart. Like, it's just, it's so wildly different. Like, we've seen oh, yeah. so much more crews than Hanks, and we're kind of losing that, that we're that the thread is disconnecting. Because, like, we sort of know by this point, like, in 96, like, you know, Hanks had done Toy Story. He's in the Toy Story-ish era. He already won two Oscars. Like, we kind of know roughly where he is, but it's, it's difficult to sort of get in that mindset, so... Two very important questions before we nominate this for some awards. Does Tom Cruise run in this movie? <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Like a lot too, right? Like right at the beginning. He's running when it when the explodes the big fish tank, he runs right out of that scene. <laughs> I know that that was obviously a yes, but I just want I need, I need to, you know, precedent there there has to be some kind mm-hmm. of decorum here. Like we need to ask the questions. The bigger question though, we found Harperfect or Har Perfect on Twitter said Every Tom Cruise character could be renamed Lightning McQueen and not a single thing would change. So if we so here's we have two opportunities here. Either his actual character name, either Ethan Hunt could be Lightning McQueen, or his undercover alias could be Lightning McQueen. Do either of those work? Can Mission Impossible exist <laughs> if Ethan Hunt or Philip Doucette Duchette, whatever, is named Lightning McQueen? 
thoughts? Well, uh, let me put it this way. Yeah. Lightning McQueen, do you accept this mission? <laughs> I say yes. That means that's perfect. It's perfect. This message will self-destruct in 10 seconds. A Lightning McQueen. <laughs> I, yeah, I say yeah. Why the hell? I okay. mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm too grounded in the real world to say yes. Joey and I are a little off the deep end here sometimes. <laughs> it makes more sense in a movie like Days of Thunder. Because they all got weird names in that one. Cold trickle. This is literally my favorite part of the podcast. It's imagining if if he could be Lightning McQueen. Like I thought about it while watching the movie, and it just made me laugh. Like it just, it's such a dumb tweet, like such a perfect tweet. John Voight going. <laughs> there's there's no indication that Harper Effect has ever listened to this podcast that he ever will listen to this podcast. But if you do, thank you. It is my favorite thing. I could just see like uh, <laughs> John Voight having to deliver that line, going Lightning. You don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Just like with a straight face. Before we close up shop, come back in two weeks for Jerry Maguire, a role in which Tom Cruise was nominated for Best Lead Actor in the Academy Awards. Mm. Let us nominate this for some Golden Oakley, some Golden Sunglasses, whatever they're going to be. It might have to be something Mission Impossible related. You know what I mean? I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, Golden Stick of Dynamite. The Golden, golden case Mask. Files. Ooh, the Golden Mask. That could be good. The Man in the Golden Mask. So I'm going to say here, best film, yes, Mission Impossible. Yeah. And I know there's a, there's actually, I found there's a, quite a few haters out there on this one that I think, you know, they need to rewatch it in this day and age, you know? Definitely got to give this one another shot if you were lukewarm to it. I'm going to say best cruise role, Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible franchise, because there's no way that it's not. Yeah. Most badass role as well, Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Best fight. Is there a fight in here knowing, not I mean, we're going to really. scale this down, but is mm-hmm. there a particular fight in here knowing where the, where the franchise goes that we want to nominate for best fight? I mean, like I said, I don't even remember anyone throwing a punch necessarily. And especially, it's not going to, we're going to nominate the bathroom scene, right? With Henry Cavill when we get there. Oh, oh yeah. Reloading his arms. (laughs) (laughs) Best theme song, soundtrack, score, absolutely. I forgot to mention, Danny Elfman's work on this is brilliant, and he really sounds like he's doing a De Palma movie because it sounds like the scores to his earlier suspense stuff. Well, there's moments in this score that sound like it's a riff on the old Mission Impossible theme, and it's really jazzy and cool, and then suddenly the music does this Beetlejuice cue, and I'm like, did Danny Elfman do this score? And I, I was like, holy <laughs> shit. And, and it never really comes back, but I couldn't get it out of my head how it didn't fit in the Mission Impossible world to me, but he doesn't ever really go full Elfman. And yeah, I, I'd say it's pretty respectful to, you know, where it came from and everything. So I, I did like it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's good. I think that especially with the nominator for the theme, but I think the the score as a whole is sort of the entire suite, the ensemble, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it because I mean, next time we're going to get Limp Bizkit, right? Doing the oh boy. <laughs> Apparently the a couple of the guys from U2 did like remixes on this. Larry Mullen, Senior Son, and Adam Clay, 2000 Pounds were fans of the TV show and they knew the original theme music well, but they were nervous about remaking the legendary theme song. Adam Clayton put together his own version and Larry Mullen did his in Dublin and they were influenced by Brian Eno, old sourpuss himself, and the Euro dance scene, <laughs> and the, the recently finished album Passengers. They allowed Polygram to pick the favorite, and they wanted both. And then in a month, they had two versions of the song and five remixed by DJs, and all seven tracks, all seven versions of that, appeared on promotional vinyl and CD releases. So I think it's cool that Q2 uh, is involved in this in a weird way. <laughs> Best car chase slash race. Uh, Again, knowing where this goes, 
I don't know. Hmm. I don't think so. No. Dance scene, no. Outfit, wardrobe, again, not quite. Sunglasses, no. He's got the, the, the regular he's got glasses. The, he's got the, it, it, well, they got a camera in him. Remember at the end, he's like, but you're wrong about one thing. Yeah. I'm not the only one that's seen you alive. Yep. After he puts, and he throws mm-hmm. the glasses at Voight. It's a great moment. <laughs> Best death, he does not die, which is important. Best line, I am for sure going to say, relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think, because I think that's just a perfect, perfect line. Does, is there a freakout in here that is worth knowing? Oh, is it? I mean, I, I feel like he does. Is it technically a freakout when he escapes from the uh, IMF agents, you know, with the with the gum the first time? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Or what about when he meets when John Voight re- reveals himself? He doesn't really go like hysterical, but he's kind of in. Nah, never mind. No, because I think he put it together at that point that he was going to pop up sooner or later. Yeah. Okay. I've talked myself out of it. Perfect. Best sex scene? No. Most athletic feat? Well, I'll just oh. say for now, escaping the, the flood. Doing the uh, the whole Cirque du Soleil thing into the vault. Oh, yes. Cirque du Soleil slash vault heist. Which, could you imagine if like Cirque du Soleil put on a Mission Impossible Vegas show? Like, love it. Holy just shit. did all kinds of crazy fucking homages. Would love it. Would love it so much. Best running scene? No, I mean, we know that he runs, but knowing where he's going to run in this oh, franchise, yeah, will hold for off like for a now. straight minute, right, or something. I mean, I best or worst love story? There is none in this movie to be to, of note. Best ensemble? Which, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say about the the love story thing. Uh, at the end, John Voight has like this line where he's like, "Ethan, thou shalt not covet." I'm sorry, lightning, thou shalt not covet you know, your neighbor's wife. And I'm like, he never thought of not Angelina Jolie as like a sex object in this movie. Let's face it, guys. John Voight's wife in this movie looks like his real life daughter, which is super creepy. Did you guys get any Angelina Jolie vibes off of her? Oh, sure. Of the French actress, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of disgusting. (laughs) Uh, But I was like, there's no time for sex in this movie whatsoever. Everybody no time is for like, sex, Dr. Jones. Exactly. There was the scene where she comes back to the apartment in hysterics and she's like, it's four o'clock, I'm supposed to be here at four o'clock, it's four o'clock, it's four o'clock. He does that like very aggressive pat down of her and then he like mm-hmm. laying over her on the bed and it feels like he's about to go in for the kiss and he doesn't. And like, that's the moment. Like if he doesn't do it there, there's no attraction. You know what I mean? Like it's just like, yeah, that's not yeah. going to happen. Best ensemble cast, I'm going to say no because that goes back to Mike Flynn's earlier point that like, this movie doesn't do a, g- a great job of fleshing out the world. Like it's going to. We're going to have Benji. Mm-hmm. We're going to have more Ving Rhames. We're going to have more Luther. We're going to have you know everybody in the later movies. But for now, it's not it's not up, up to par there. The final question, best non-Cruise actor, male or female? Anybody in this movie that stands out among huh. everybody who's been in his movies with him? I have two. One is Ving Rhames, who you should be giving a, a special okay. achievement award for being in all of the other ones, even yep. though in Ghost Protocol it's a cameo. And the other one is Vanessa Redgrave because she gets an amazing one-scene role that is unforgettable, in my opinion. I will definitely put Ving Rhames on there because I know that he's going to come back. I don't, I don't mind that. I feel like the Vanessa Redgrave, like I, I, I agree that she is great in this, but I feel like it's hard to compare her to like a female lead in any of these other movies, like the, the sort of the Demi Moore and A Few Good Men, or like you know Kelly McGillis and Top Gun, or you know, Nicole Kidman in the three movies. Like, it's hard to sort of stack up one great scene, as great as it is, compared to sure. everything. But uh, you're not wrong to compliment her, because I think she's great in this movie. Seven nominees. Best film, best role, most badass role, best theme slash soundtrack slash score, best line, most athletic feat, and best non-cruise actor male. Awesome. Well, we did it. We did it. We are one-sixth of the way through 
the Mission Impossible movies. Like we are really like it's we're cranking it up now. Not that <laughs> Cruise Club was already not great, but we are now next level into the stratosphere. Next level. Oh boy! Like we are going to like Jerry Maguire. I don't remember if I like or not. We're gonna get there in two weeks. But then oh. after that, back to back, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia. Like I don't know. I I I don't. I just don't know. How hmm. are we this hashtag blessed? <laughs> Like all, so we many good are. movies back to back. Meanwhile, we're like, oh God, Hanks, all right, all right come on. I know, come on, Hanks, enough. But uh, I, I'll just say this about Jerry Maguire: uh, I fought that movie and it won. It won me over, and I'm looking forward to watching it again. Well, also, you're the world's like. biggest Cuba Gooding Jr. fan. Well, I was huh. at one point. No, not the world's biggest. I just well, love that. Until he got uh, canceled. Yeah, man, not a man of honor anymore. Let's no. just say that. Ooh. Mike, give me ten steps. <laughs> Gunny, <laughs> I want my steps. All right, well, Mike Flynn, thank you so, so much for joining us. If you want to let our listeners know, is there somewhere on the internet that you would like to be found? Instagram, Twitter, whatever, anywhere that you want, or some place that you you do your writings or video or anything like that? If you want to get more of me and get a little more Flynn sanity in your life, uh, follow me on Instagram at Mike Drew Flynn. Cool. And we will, uh, I will make sure to link that in the show write-up on cageflub.me. But again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm sorry that we couldn't make the schedule work to have you on Dragnet. We did read a little bit of your note on Dragnet there and sort of how much that movie meant to you. But we are here. You were here to talk about Mission Impossible, kicking things off. Maybe this is phase two of, of Cruise Club. Like we had the, like, not the phase one was by any means hmm. underwhelming. No. This feels like this is a new era, right? Like this it is does. now. It absolutely is. Yeah. This is definitely the beginning of a new chapter for his career. Almost, Joey, in the way that Hanks will turn a corner in a movie or two, right? And yep. like his new chapter will work. His his book will finally start. I don't know what it was. <laughs> the, the ultimate streak. Will and just begin. like that one song saying, the rest is still unwritten. But for all things Cruise Club and Hanks to the Memories and all twenty five shows in the podcast network, including the other shows that Mike has been on in the past on Cage Club and Keanu Club and all those fine programs, you go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us run at cageclub.me. Check out Hanks to the Memories next week for a great great movie joe versus the volcano come back in two weeks for jerry Maguire, and then come back every week here every friday fridays are for fun new tom tom club every week alternating between tom Cruise and tom hanks what's not to love i'm joey lewandowski and i'm mike manzi and that was mike flynn and we will see you next time for jerry Maguire right here on cruise clubs 